Good morning. If you have been with us over the last three weeks, either all those weeks or part of those weeks, you know that we have been developing Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus, his final words before his ascension, he said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, we've talked about Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and the significance behind all of that. Well, today, our focus is on to the ends of the earth. And so we've got a special guest that's going to be speaking with us today, a friend of mine that uh, uh, Roro and I first met back, um, well, let me just put it in perspective. It was before Kurt was even born, okay? So, uh, so I mean, it's like Kurt could be our child. So, uh, yeah, anyway, yeah, for, 40 years, 1980 is when we met and struck up a friendship. And, and, uh, and since Roro's time, um, he was at Bible College when we were there. He has uh, uh, returned to Haiti and done an incredible work. And you're going to be hearing some of that here today. And so, so I'm excited about this. We have a number of people that are in this room that uh, went on a mission trip. I was talking to a few of you uh, before the service began. Uh, the very first mission trip that we took, we had, I can't even remember exactly, was it 13, Cindy? 13 people, does that sound about right? It, it was a group about that size. Um, went down and, and uh, served there for about 10 days or so. Um, if you're looking for a hot experience, I highly recommend Haiti. <laughs> it was hot, but uh, uh, it was exciting to be able, be able to be a part of something that you knew was really significant. Even some of the pictures, we helped build some of those bricks that were in that hospital that uh, they were showing on the video just a moment ago. So I'm excited about Roro sharing with us today about his work and also exhorting us in regards to the importance of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. So, Roro, why don't you go ahead and come on up and share with us. Good morning. I've never seen anyone sweat like Brad. Oh, I felt so sorry for him when he was in Haiti. Uh, Eileen and I, my wife, we've been um, traveling, uh, starting from Ohio uh, uh, up to here this morning. And next week, uh, I, next Sunday, I will be in Columbia, Missouri. Uh, but leaving here tomorrow, I'm flying to Houston. And then from Houston next Saturday, I will be flying to, back to Colombia. But when I was in Ohio, I had just gotten from Haiti. My thin, my blood is thin. I don't like cold. Snow, I like to see it from inside out. Um, I came to Ohio, it was rather cold. And I said a selfish prayer to God. And I said, God, I am here in Ohio. I ask you 
to keep the snow for a while. When I leave, you can bring it, get, you can bring the snow, give it to them. But I won't be in Ohio. So I thank God so far I've seen a little bit of it. But uh, tomorrow we fly to, uh, to Houston. And uh, so it's been a very good uh, trip. We've seen a lot of our friends. And uh, uh, like Brad said, he and I, we've been friends uh, since 1980, 1981. We attended Ozark Christian College. And uh, I played soccer all my life. So when I came to Ozark, they had a soccer team, and I played soccer for the school. And uh, uh, we were playing Missouri Southern when I was in... Uh, March 30th, 1981. Maybe some of you might remember what happened on that day. Oh, you might be too young. That's what Brad said, right? Uh, that's when President Reagan got shot. That was March 30, March 31st, 1981. I was playing against Missouri Southern, and uh, I had a... Um, I dribbled a goalie, and then he hit me, and I broke my knee. And uh, I couldn't walk. I had surgery in my knee, and uh, but Brad was with me all along. Brad was, would be carrying my book bags, and uh, he would carry my crutches. Would take me to school, to classes, and uh, um, so Brad and I then we've been uh, friends uh, since. So this morning, I am so happy to, uh, to be here, to be able to worship God with you. I know uh, some of my friends in Haiti are praying, are praying for me and also praying for you here this, mor uh, this morning. And um, we have a, uh, there's a church near from Peridot where the hospital is, in a little town called Benet. Um, there is an old man in that church, and it seems that anyone who is going to die, that man always predict who, is, who will be the next person to die in that town, Bene. So a lot of people are, are afraid of him. And uh, one day there was a funeral at the Catholic church, and he went to the funeral. There were a lot of people there in that church for the funeral. And uh, someone went to him and said, who will be the next person to die? And he said, the first person will get out of the church after the funeral is over. So the guy went and told everybody. He said, the next person who get out of the church will be the person that, one, that, that will be the next person to die. So the service was over. The funeral was over, and uh, no one left. <laughs> I bet in the next service, the church will be too small. There won't be anyone leaving here, leaving the church after the service is over, because the next person to leave this door will be what? Will die. So I bet you all will stay here. <laughs> the, after the funeral was over, they asked the priest, are you going to leave the church now? The priest said, no. <laughs> they, they said, why come? He said, well, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. So 
I bet uh, we went into our fun this morning and uh, worship uh, God. They cannot hear if no one tells them. If no one go and tell them about, about Jesus. When we started the church in uh, Peredo, that was right after the earthquake in Haiti that did, killed over 300,000 people. We were going from Port-au-Prince helping people who were hurt. Then I saw the necessity, I saw the need to start a church because I saw so many witch doctors temple in the area and so many people who were suffering from that earthquake. But I had also made my mind that I will not sleep until I talk with one person at least about Jesus. It happened one, evening, one afternoon. I was tired and I said, well, I'm going to rest. I'm not going to, uh, going to take a nap. Then I remember there was a witch doctor somewhere. So I, I went and knocked at one, one door, one person. But I knocked, no one answered. I couldn't hear anyone. So I persisted and knocked on the door. And I could hear inside of the house a little girl who was crying. So I pried the door open and I went inside and I saw a little girl. She was nine years old, sleeping on a piece of cardboard. They had no beds. And I asked her, what's wrong? What happened? And she told me, while his mo her mom was cooking, so, and then they had no stove, they had three rocks and put a pen over it, and then a piece of wood, and she was running and hit, and she fell, and she got burned. Her father, instead of taking her to the nearest hospital, which is about one hour from where we were, we, we, they were, took her to a witch doctor. And that witch doctor told her father that it was an evil spirit, that uh, she had a curse on her. That's why she fell. In order to cast that curse, you have to go look for all batteries you put in flashlight, break them open, and put on the wounds. And that's what the father was doing for almost a week. When I saw that little girl crying and I looked closely, I could see some little thing crawling in the wounds. There were some maggots in the wounds. I was so mad. And I called, waited for the father. I almost got him and shake him. But I took the girl on my shoulder, put her in my car, and took her to the hospital. When I got there, the doctor said, I am going to amputate her legs. And I pleaded with the doctor, no, don't. So I took her to another hospital, put her on a plane, and went somewhere with, with, uh, with her. But I know there was that witch, doc witch doctor. So I went 
he had, the witch doctor had a son, and I saw him barefooted, walking barefooted one day, and I gave him a pair of shoes. He went home and told his father, who is the witch doctor, that Pastor Roro gave me a pair of tennis shoes. And uh, the father was looking for me. People in the church, people in the area were afraid that uh, hope they think that the guy was going to send a spell on me, whatever. But I'm a Christian. I'm not afraid of the spell of the witch doctor. So I went to him one day and I said, I heard that you've been asking for me. I want, here I am. What do you want to? And he said, I understand you give a pair of shoes to my son. And I said, yes, I just want to thank you. And he said, would you take my son Benito and teach him about Jesus? And I said, wow. And I said, what about you? And he said, I cannot become a Christian because I sold my soul to the devil when I was young. I will not become a Christian. But I kept, uh, I persisted, always go to him and share the gospel with him. And finally, one day, he came in by the church, and then while I was preaching, I saw him outside. We didn't have a mic, but I preached louder so he could hear. And the louder I spoke, the closer he got. And finally, at the invitation, he came forward and gave his life to Christ. Because of that one witch doctor, there were other witch doctors in the area who gave their lives to Christ, who are now members of the church in Emmanuel Christian Church in Peredo. They cannot hear if someone doesn't tell them. They cannot be rescued if someone doesn't go and help them. In the summer of uh, 2012, a very special ceremony was held in New York City to honor the firefighters and other volunteers who have given their lives on the line during the terrorist attack of 9-11. It was a very sad moment as the city remembered all those who lost their lives seeking to rescue others on that terrible day because they were in a life and death situation. The 911 rescuers gave themselves because they knew many people would either live or die based on their efforts. When talking with one of the firefighters about the situation, he said, if I had to save one more person, one more life would be saved. That would be a big difference. You see, there are millions and millions of people who are facing certain spiritual disasters if I would Jesus Christ, like that witch doctor. They too need someone to lead them to safety. They need the church to witness to them. They need us to lead them to the cross of Jesus Christ where sin is paid for and have the sin forgiven. That is why God has called and mobilized the church as a rescue unit 
to be his witnesses to turn people who are on their way to hell toward heaven, maybe one at a time. And brothers and sisters, you see, we need to be sold out on evangelism. Evangelism is telling, sharing with others about what Christ has done in your own life and what he means to you. Evangelism is telling your good friends about what your best friend, Jesus, has done for you. Once we were blind, and now we can see. There is a group of uh, eye doctors who went to Africa to do a mobile clinic. And um, when they get there, the first day of the clinic, there was an older man who came to have his eye checked because he couldn't see. He lost his sight for a long time. After they checked his eyes, the doctors decided that he had cataract needed the surgery. So they did the surgery for him. They put a patch on his eyes and they told him to wait until he can see, until they take the patch out. So after two days, they took the patch out and the guy the old man started to see a little bit of the sun. Then the doctor said, okay, you need to stay here for a few days until we can take the patch completely out and so you can go home. After two, three days, they were looking for him. No one saw him. They didn't know where he went. But a few days later, they could hear some Bunch of people coming from afar. And everybody got out. And they saw that old man who just had surgery in his eyes. Holding on the rope, leading. And a bunch of people were holding also on the rope, coming to the clinic. And the doctor said, we told you to wait until you could see. We've been looking for you, but we, we didn't see you. Where did you go? He said, I was blind. I came to the, for many years, I couldn't see the sun. I came to the clinic, and now I can see. But I know where I live. There are a bunch of people like me who lost their sight. They can see. I went to get them so they can come. Also, they can see the sun. We also, we were blind. One day, we we, see, we saw the sun, S-O-N. It is our responsibility to go also and bring those who are blind to come and meet the sun, S-O-S, our Savior, Jesus Christ. If evangelism is a priority with God, it must also be for us to bring one more to the kingdom. God's desire is that all people come to the knowledge of Christ. God's heart is for all the lost to come to know him. Therefore, all of us Christians need to be involved because with the Holy Spirit in our lives, we have the power to significantly, significantly impact many. In John chapter 12, verse 24 to 27, when we read these verses, especially in Verse 24, the theme can, I can get is the power of one. 
the power of one. I think I can bring up from several testimonies from individuals whose life had been significantly impacted by others, included by the power of one teacher. I have two of my teachers here, two of my professors here. Uh, so would you stand up, so and would you stand up again? Two of my professors are closed. Those people have impacted my life. The power of one student, the power of one friend, and the power of a pastor. Isn't it amaz amazing how one individual can make such a powerful and lasting impression on us that it shapes us who we are? What one single person has had the most important in your life? What one person that you can think you have influenced his life, her life, for the glory of God? You may never be on the front page of a Time magazine or appear on the national TV, but you can make a big difference and a, power, a powerful difference in life of many. I was not raised in a Christian home. I grew up very religious. My parents were very religious in the Catholic Church. So religious that my parents bought a pew in the church. We, have, we had our names waiting in the back of the pew. If I go to church and I see someone sitting on that pew, I had the right to make that person get up and go sit somewhere else. Because that pew belonged to my mom, to my dad. And so I grew up in Catholic school. My principals were priests. But I was an altar boy at nine years old. I already know Latin. But something happened to me that made me hate the church, hate Christ, hate God. And I had nothing to do with God. Someone had given me a Bible, and I took it to the, I was nine years old, and I took it to the school. One of my friends went and told the priest that I had a Bible. He called me in his office and took the Bible from me and expelled me from the school. And from that day, I hated God. And I said, if you were God, if you are what you said you are, why did you let that happen to me? Kicking out, get kicked me out of the school by a priest because I had a, bi a Bible. From grade school to high school to university in Haiti, starting law school, I hated God. I had nothing to do with God until one of this one young man of, uh, from Haiti went to, uh, back to Haiti. He was a student at Ozark Christian College. He met me and started inviting me to, to church. And I told him, I can be offering, but church, it's a no-no thing for me. I kept asking me, and finally I said, one night I said, it's over. I will go for the last, first and last time. Don't ask me again. So I went, and I sat in the back. As I was, I was looking all over, strange, but I looked and I saw some beautiful girls in that church. And I, said, and I said, maybe if he invites me again, I will go again. <laughs> and so I kept going. I kept going, and when he invited me, and uh, they were having a revival in that church. There was a man by the name of Vincent Graham from Jamaica. He was a, also a graduate from Ozark Christian College. We were preaching that revival in our church, in that church in Port-au-Prince. And uh, he preached the first sermon, 
doing that revival. It was for a week, revival. He preached as if he knew my life. And I was so scared, I left the church before he was done. I went home. I didn't want to become a Christian. But I was convicted on that night that I needed to do something with my life. On Wednesday, which was February 17, 1977, I went back to doing the revival. And I, the invitation, I went forward and gave my life to Christ that day. And I said to myself, no turning back. God, I want to serve you. In 1979, I didn't even go to school. But my minister asked me to translate two books from English into French. One of them was one written by a professor by the name of Seth Wilson, Learning from Jesus. I translated that book from English into French. And another book, uh, um, If You Want to Preach by Don DeWeld. And I translated those two books from English into French. It was then that I knew, I learned really about, about God. In 1979, I started a church in downtown, outside of Port-au-Prince, and that church is still going on today. In 1980, a man by the name of Bill Hostetler went to Haiti on a short-term mission trip, and at the end of, our, I was in law school, but I escaped one week to help and I mixed concrete, helping carrying blocks. And uh, at the end of the trip, Bill said to my minister, I want to do something for Haiti that will last. Do you have a young man in the church who is serious about God? That I will bring him to the States and help him with his education, and then for him to go back to Haiti. So I was the one chosen, and I came to to Joplin, August 15, 1980. My first night on the campus of Ozark, I was w walking and looking where the classes were going to be. It was that evening, and I saw a very beautiful black and white animal. I love cats. <laughs> and I was calling, kitty, 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 kitty. But there was a student by the name of Susan Kendall who ran after me and grabbed me. He said, this is not a cat, this is a skunk. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have skunks, we don't have skunks in Haiti. So I thought she was being mean, she didn't want me to play, she wanted to get the cat. I was getting closer to the cat. And she said, no. Then she told, gave me a lesson about, about skunks. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, but uh, was there at Ozark that I get uh, educated. But upon our graduations, my wife and I, Eileen, we were married in Ohio. And because we were married in the States, at going back to Haiti, she couldn't go back because I, I had to change her maiden name to my name on her passport. But the, since we were in Ohio, the closest place to do that was at the Haitian embassy in New York City. So I flew to New York City to get this done. I went to the embassy, uh, filled in the form, they took the passport from me and they said, 
they will mail it back to me in a month. As I was leaving the embassy, there was a man coming who was a friend of mine that I started law school with. And he was well-dressed, and it was in the winter, winter time uh, that he has it suit, and then he was happy to see me, and he said, well, what are you coming? What do you want? What are you doing here? So I told him, and I told him what I was told, and he said, no, come back. So I went back with him and sat down, and 15 minutes later, he walked out and handed me the passport. It was done. And then he said, what do you, what do you need the passport for now? And I said, we are going back to Haiti. We're done with our studies. And he said, are you crazy? He said, there is nothing for you in Haiti now. I, you speak four languages. I speak French, I speak English, I speak Spanish, and I speak Creole. Then he said, the UN are looking for people like you. United Nations need people like you. He said, I am the first secretary of Haiti at the United Nations. I can give you a job at the UN. So at that time, I had only $300 promised to me and Eileen to go back to Haiti. And uh, Eileen was in Ohio, and I called her, and I said, Eileen, honey, we're not going back to Haiti. Uh, start packing your books and things. We are going to go to New York, back, live in New York City. We're going to work for the UN. We got a job at the United Nations. But I told my, my friend, Henry, I said, Henry, before I accept to apply for the job, I need to call Eileen. So I called Eileen, and Eileen waited for a while, and she said, no, we're not going to New York. We're going back to Haiti. And I said, honey, you don't understand. We only have $300 to us. But in you, at the, working for the UN, we will have a lot of money. And she said, if we stay in the States, we can be useful. But in Haiti, we are needed. Those were the two words that make me go back to Haiti. Useful and needed. And I called my friends and I said, Henry, I'm sorry, the boss has spoken. <laughs> I, 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 I have to go. I have to, we have to go back to Haiti. December 18, 1984, we um, bought a plane, went back to Haiti. And in, 18, in April 21st of 1985, we started our first church, Emmanuel Christian Church in Port-au-Prince, with seven people. Now we have eight churches. We've started from scratch with six schools and a major hospital the, uh, serving over a million people in the southeast of uh, coast of, uh, of Haiti. You see the power of one man, Bill Hostetler. The power of one man went back to Haiti. And many souls are being won for Christ. Somebody may be in heaven because of you. Somebody may have kept going when they were tempted to give up because of you. Somebody may be in the church this morning here because of you. Don't ever sell yourself short. 
you can have an impact that will last through eternity. Jesus, by using the analogy between a grain of wheat and each of us, revealed the potential of life devoted to God. He answered the question, what difference can one person make? His teaching can inspire and guide us in, in the life of discipleship today, which is bringing people to Christ. No matter how long you have been a Christian, our lives will be germinate when we give ourselves to Jesus Christ. Therefore, we become agents of influence. Have you ever looked at your world with its needs and asked yourself, what difference can I make? Well, you might not be able to change the world, the whole world, but you can make a difference in your sphere of influence. In 1848, Dr. John Getty went to a small island in the Pacific Ocean as a missionary. He worked there for 24 years. When on the tablet, he, on, on, when he left and when he died, to his memory, these words were written in his tomb. When he landed in 1848, there was no Christians. When he left in 1872, there were no heathen. 24 years. There were no Christians when he got there and when he left. There were no hidden. Everyone in, the, in this, that island knew who Jesus was. You see, the Bible is full of examples of people who are not strong, who are educated, or whatever. But God always used people who are willing to give themselves to his cause, to save the world. One person, one day at a time, can bring one more person to the kingdom of God. That is the mission of the church. In Matthew 28, verse 18 to 20. Muhammad Gandhi made a fundamental decision to expel the British power out of India. This choice founded in the authentic power was more powerful than the force of all the guns and bombs of an entire empire. A short, frail man with glasses moved out an entire empire without a single bullet. He knew there were people who were in bondage, who needed to be freed, who needed to be rescued from, to freedom. In April 1912, 1,500 people drowned in the cold waters of the Atlantic Ocean when the Titanic went down. Among the many tragic things that happened on that famous night, in the love boats rowing away from, that, from the Titanic, there were a lot of room for more people. Instead, the people in the, boat, in the rescue boat were afraid that the boat would cap, capsize and they refused to go back to save those more than those who were in that boat. Those people in the water were screaming for help. They knew their lives were in danger. You see, 
Most people in the world are not screaming out for rescue, but they are drowning as surely as those dreading near the Titanic. They are lost and facing eternity in hell without Christ. Therefore, we as the church have the responsibility to reach them with the gospel. God wants us to see the world with his glasses. The Bible teaches that there is joy in heaven for one soul that gave his or life to God. Let me ask you this question. Do you have relatives, friends, neighbors, or co-workers on their way to hell today who could say somebody, someday, that you never told them about Jesus and how they could be saved? How many people could say to you at the judgment day, I worked next to you for 20 years and you never told me about Jesus. You see, if we believe in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, then there is no excuse for telling others about Jesus. Peter says, there is no salvation in all, no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. The name of Jesus. One name. In Luke 15, verse 7, Jesus said, There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous who need no repentance. As we leave this place this morning, let us be witnesses for Jesus because of his great love for us. Last Friday, uh, Megan and I and Eline, we had the opportunity to go to uh, visit the Maya Museum downtown uh, Kansas City. Uh, while we were visiting the museum, I saw a quote that I, I stopped and think about, thought about that quote, and I wrote it down. And it reads, let us rise up as one. Let us all be called. Let there be neither one, nor two of us, left behind. This from the sacred book of the Maya. What does the Bible say? The book of books. For God so loved the world that he gave his begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but will have a less eternal life. They cannot, the world cannot know if we don't tell them, maybe one at a time, one more in the kingdom. Let us pray. Father God, we come before you this morning in awe thanking you for what you've done for us and giving yourself to the cross where our sins are paid for and where we find forgiveness. We pray all this morning, God, that you will put a fire in us to be witnesses of you in sharing the gospel, not only in Jerusalem, in Judea, 
but to the end of the, of the world. There are millions of people who are dying without you each day that we need a savior. May we use us to, be res to become rescuers as we go and tell them about Jesus Christ, your son. For in his name we pray, amen. The mission team, uh, a little over a year and a half ago, got a challenge from somebody who uh, adopted a child through a different program and talked about how come we don't push some kind of adoption like this. And we talked about it for a while, and then we kind of looked into different groups that we could um, ask you guys to sponsor. And because of our connection with HCO in the past and because of the work that they do, um, we just thought maybe that would be a natural fit. Well, that was over a year ago. And then the last year has been exceptionally challenging in Haiti. Um, you remember that the president of Haiti was assassinated. And since that time, basically gangs and, well, gangs have taken over the government. And they just are running things the way they want to run them. And there's a lot of conversations about uh, the violence that's going on, about kidnappings for money, for, I asked about, uh, do they even see that the economy's going downhill? And he said, doesn't matter. They just kidnap somebody, get some money out of them, and then they're fine, and that's all they're worried about. Um, supplies have been stolen and robbed so that they can hold those for ransom. All kinds of stuff that's going on just so that they can uh, continue to control. And I said, Are the, is the government unwilling to do anything? And he said, well, it's not that they're unwilling, it's just the criminals have bigger guns. And so it's, it's a very difficult situation. And it's been difficult in Haiti for a long time. But this last year has been very exceptional. And so we really do want to encourage you guys to consider this as an option, um, not because we want to push you to do something you're not willing to do. We just want to give you the opportunity, if you're willing, to help out. And this is uh, Megan Schreiber. She's from uh, the She's the director on the state side of HCO, and she is uh, here to kind of explain a little bit about what's going on with the child sponsorship program. Um, child sponsorship for most places is that you, um, you get a sponsor a child, they send you a picture and a profile, but for you guys, child sponsorship is a little bit different. Can you describe what that's like? Yeah, so um, child sponsorship through Haitian Christian Outreach is actually changing as of January, but you all are the first church to help us roll out our new structure. So we're, ho we're hoping that you will help us spearhead this. Um, in Haiti, the statistics for children enrolled in school that are school age are very low. It's only 60%. Of that 60%, only 30% of those make it past the third grade. And of that, only 60% make it past the sixth grade. And if I had to guess, those statistics will probably be lower as of this year and the next year just because of everything going on. And so we want to change that in our schools. And part of that is by doing a classroom sponsorship instead of doing an individual sponsorship. And so from now on, when you opt in to help us with that, you will, instead of getting an individual child sponsorship, you will get a classroom profile or a classroom sponsorship um, in which you are helping us to send an entire classroom through from pre-k all the way through to secondary school so when you sign up to take a seat in our classroom you are watching that classroom 
go all the way through with your recurring donation. And I, when I was introduced to this idea, I liked it a lot because uh, instead of focusing just on that individual, it's the opportunity for whoever is occupying that seat because sometimes things change and, you know, people come and go, but um, you can actually see that class develop through. Um, if somebody here decided that they wanted to take a seat and to sponsor a seat in the classroom, um, how would that money then be used to help them out? Yeah, so the way that money is used is we obviously pay, we still have to pay for the curriculum. So even though the governments do not, 88% um, of the schools in Haiti are actually privately run schools, which means um, they're run through organizations like ours. And so we still have to pay for the curriculum. Um, we also help to pay the child's tuition through that to help take that burden off of the family, um, which is especially important right now because with the gangs and with the hardship going on, we're actually seeing the gangs recruit young kids um, to increase their numbers. And so keeping them in school is so important at this point. We feed every child, whether they are sponsored or not, in our school. Um, and a lot of times we see them bring containers to help portion off that food and take that home to help feed others in their family. They also get free health care through our hospital when they're on our roster at our school. All right, very good. And so how can, if they decide today they want to sign up, how can they do that? And if they decide they want to go home and think about it, what do they need to do? Yeah, so we actually have a um, table out here in which I can help you um, either through our QR code that we have on our banner or I have my computer set up. I can actually walk you through how to do that. Or we also have pre-addressed envelopes. If you want to take that envelope home, pray about it, and send a check in later, you are more than welcome to do that as well. All right, thank you very much.